Hello everyone, uh, this is Boots on the Ground podcast and I'm your host Dblex Lesalon. As we celebrate World Environment Day, a day that is marked annually on the 5th day of June, a United Nations flagship day to raise global awareness and action for the protection of the environment, Boots on the Ground and Biolife Africa brings to you yet another exciting podcast. This year's theme are for World Environment Day is focused on restoration of our ecosystems and, and in this uh, podcast I shall be engaging wildlife partners on some of the key restoration projects and how they have been impactful so far. Representing these partners, we have our very own Paul Gasheru, Species and Sites Manager Nature Kenya. We have Togarasei Fakarai, Important Bird Area Program Manager Birdlife Zimbabwe. And we have uh, Rafael Latte, communication, uh, Communications Officer uh, for the uh, Ghana Wildlife Society. Last but not least, we have Clara Nanja, Program Manager Birdwatch Zambia. And uh, we have uh, we also have uh, Khalid El Nobi, CEO of the Nature Conservation Egypt. I'll read through their bios real quick before we get into the discussion of the day. And I will start with uh, Togas. Togarasei Fakarai is the important bird areas program manager at Birdlife Zimbabwe. He has been in the field of biodiversity conservation for the past 14 years. His areas of expertise include sites monitoring, stakeholder engagement and empowerment, and economic valuation of ecosystem uh, services. Um, secondly, we have Khalid El Nobi, a CEO of the Nature Conservation Egypt. Khalid is also a PhD candidate at Behavioral Ecology and Wildlife Ecology and Conservation Groups in Wageningen University. In his PhD, Khalid studies the migration ecology of birds and their relations to the sewage treatment ponds in arid landscapes. Khalid has studied environmental science at Aswan University in 2006, after which he was awarded an Albertus Magnus scholarship to study the, uh, the master degree in culture and environment in Africa at the University of Cologne in 2013. Um, thirdly, we have Rafael Latte, communications officer for the Ghana Wildlife Society. Before working with Ghana Wildlife Society, he earned a degree in animal biology and conservation science, and he has been working with Ghana Wildlife Society for four years. He initially came on board as a graduate research assistant, but his responsibilities evolved over time to handle the society's overall uh, communication. His love for nature took root through his upbringing on the shores of Jamestown, Accra. Raphael believes our restoration is essential to safeguard our existence uh, with nature and will only be successful through meaningful engagement with all communities and stakeholders. Raphael says he joined the Ghana Wildlife Society specifically uh, because they recognize the inherent connection between people and nature and it is the perfect place to continue deepening his relationship with nature. When he is not working, Raphael loves spending time with family and friends or going but watching. Uh, uh, fourth, we have Clara Nanja who is the program manager, Badwatch Zambia. She was born in the tourist capital city of Zambia, where she enjoyed the views of Victoria of Victoria Falls uh, right from uh, their backyard. Uh, Clara enjoys staying out, gardening, picking treasures, and watching rainbows and sunsets in beautiful landscapes. And lastly, we have our very own Paul Gasheru, a wildlife ecologist with uh, the Species and Sites Program Manager at Nature Kenya. His work involves supporting biodiversity scientific work that informs Nature Kenya's uh, programs across the country. Cre uh, sorry, key to his work has been promoting and saving, uh, 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 or rather restoring the Mount Kenya ecosystem. I hope uh, you enjoy this episode and learn something. Karibu, karibu sana. Good 
introduce myself. My name is uh, Diblex uh, Le Salon, and I'm the host uh, Boots on the Ground podcast, and I'm so grateful to be moderating this session. And uh, I, really, I, I really would like to thank each and every one of you uh, for taking time uh, to join us this afternoon uh, to share your work. And uh, I, I'd like to give each of you a minute or two, uh, you know, to quickly introduce yourselves and mention um, the, the organization uh, that you work for and the type of uh, conservation work uh, that goes on. And I think it will be fair enough to start with the only lady here uh, who is uh, Clara. Clara, Karibu Sana. Thank you so much, Steve Lakes. Um, my name is Clara Nanja. I am program manager at Bedwatch Zambia. Bedwatch Zambia is uh, a membership-based environmental NGO and a member of BedLife International, uh, which is a global environmental and conservation partnership. So as Bedwatch Zambia, our objective is to promote the study, the conservation, and the general interest in birds and their habitats in Zambia. Our work is centered around 42 key uh, biodiversity areas and our focal point um, areas in those is to look at the species, the sites, the habitats and people. And on all of these, we take actions on the species, particularly the globally threatened species. We take action for the key biodiversity areas. We collect data on habitats and influence land use as well as other policies. In addition, we also promote links between biodiversity conservation and rural livelihoods. Thank you. Thank you so much, Clara. Um, uh, we will move to uh, Togarasei uh, Farakai, please. Uh, thank you very much, Dibirt. Um, My name is Togarasei Farakai. Uh, I work for Bird Life Zimbabwe, and I'm the IBA program manager. Uh, I'm responsible for coordination of IBA program uh, in Zimbabwe, and I'm also responsible for, for the local engagement, uh, empowerment and engagement program. Um, again, my task as the IBA program manager is also something to do with uh, policy and advocacy in order to advance biodiversity conservation work um, uh, in Zimbabwe. So as Bed Lab Zimbabwe, um, it's, a, it's a local NGO that supports conservation of birds and biodiversity um, throughout the country in Zimbabwe. And we are a partner to uh, Bird Life International. And then in terms of our programs, they are centered on uh, species, um, sites or habitats, um, also people and sustainability where we talk more for policy and advocacy work. And you see that these strategic objectives, they're also aligned to uh, strategic ob uh, objectives of uh, uh, Bird Life International. Thank you. Thank you so much, Toga. Um, we'll move to our very own uh, Paul Gasheru. Paul, it's, gr it's great to have you back on the show. <laughs> Thank you, Diblex. I uh, hope you can hear me clearly. Yeah. Uh, my name is Paul Gasheru. Uh, I work at Nature Kenya. Uh, which is the East African Natural History Society, founded in 1909. We are the bird life partner in Kenya. And our work is based on, uh, we, we work uh, as well within the key biodiversities in Kenya, 67 sites in total. And our work is based on science 
uh, and action uh, with partners. Uh, we work towards empowering local people to promote conservation uh, with development at the key uh, uh, and in the, within the key priority sites, as well as advocate for sound governance and planning uh, for a sustainable future. It is nice to be in this show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, Khalid, please. Khalid, I, I don't know if you can hear us. If Khalid is not on, uh, maybe you can move to Rafael. Rafael Latte, Ghana Wildlife Society. Hi, guys. So my name is Rafael Nilate Latte, and I am the communications officer for Ghana Wildlife Society. I also double as a graduate research assistant. So um, GWS is um, a non-governmental organization based in Accra, Ghana, and is um, a member of the BedLife International Partnership. So we've been at the forefront of nature conservation for the past three decades. And our mission is to conserve wildlife, you know, plants and animals, both in all of its form to ensure a better environment for an improved quality of life for all people. So our work over the past years has transformed corporate industrial practices, national policies, and has also provided models for like community ecotourism initiatives in Ghana. Um, our work is rooted in um, partnerships and relies heavily on the science that inspires positive conservation actions. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Raphael. Uh, maybe to return back to uh, Khalid. Khalid, uh, can, you, can you hear us? Khalid? Okay, we'll give you some time to fix uh, that uh, microphone problem. I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, moving on swiftly, I'd like to uh, circle back uh, to Clara. And Clara, could you please highlight uh, some of the restoration work that Birdwatch Zambia is currently undertaking? Thank you so much, T-Blix. Um, Birdwatch Zambia has been privileged among uh, the many non-governmental as well as government organizations within Zambia to participate on um, restoration work, particularly on um, our, our efforts have pioneered work or efforts on um, the restoration of a wetland habitat. And this has been to control and invasive the Salvinia molester. Um, two efforts have been put into that over the years. Um, the startup being 2013 with the local communities, um, the control using manual and mechanical methods. And currently we have a project on the same site for the same invasive um, Salvinia molester. And right now we are using a biological control for that. I guess I'm going to get an opportunity to give a broader explanation on that. Sure, sure, we'll get, we'll get into much of that in, in a moment. And uh, Agasheru, what are some of the restoration efforts Nature Kenya is undertaking? Could you please take us through some, some of those? Well, thank you, Diblex. Uh, for us here in Kenya, we, we have been promoting forest and, landscape, uh, forest and landscape restoration through different approaches, informing policy uh, or influencing policy, as well as direct restoration. And with direct restoration within areas like Mount Kenya Forest, uh, within the Tana River Delta, 
Yala, Yala, Yala wetland, among other key biodiversity within the country, where we are empowering the local communities to take charge, uh, to be able to restore these degraded areas within, within, this, within these landscapes. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Gasheru. Uh, Toga, how does that look like in, uh, in Zimbabwe? Can you hear me now? Yes, <laughs> I think I'm on. Yeah, I think I've solved the problem with the microphone. Sorry, uh, everyone. Uh, I don't know. This was such unfortunate. I'm, I'm with you fully now. I, I apologize. OK, Kali, thank you for joining us. Uh, maybe I'll give you a chance to quickly introduce yourselves, yourself, sorry, and um, the organization that you work for and the type of conservation work that goes on there before we proceed, please. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, first of all, I'd like to thank all of you. And I would like to thank you for inviting me for this broadcast. My name is Khalid Nobi. I'm the CEO of Nature Conservation Egypt. Nature Conservation Egypt uh, is an is an Egyptian NGO, works towards conserving Egyptian natural heritage and the promotion of its sustainable use for the benefit of present and future generations. Uh, NCE is established in 2005 by a number of Egyptians leading experts in the field of nature and biodiversity conservation. We are specialized in scientific research, advocacy, education and outreach to support species in their habitats uh, and local communities. NCE works in partnership with local experts, governmental bodies, as well as international organization to ensure, uh, to ensure the biodiversity conservation uh, within and across borders. So um, that's very briefly who we are. Uh, at the moment, we uh, are uh, very uh, concentrating or focusing on uh, bird migration uh, in the uh, in the Red Sea Rift Valley flyway in particular and different sectors, hunting and, and energy sectors, as well as many other projects for uh, marine conservation that's involved with the conservation of marine turtles and um, unprotected areas uh, of marine coastal lines. Thank you so much, Khalid, for that. Um, could you please take us through some of the restoration work or other projects on the ground that you're, that you're working on at the moment? Uh, at the moment, we are involved in a very big restoration work that has to do with the restoration along the flyway, uh, along the Red Sea. Egypt, with uh, 100 million uh, uh, people live in the country with uh, an increasing demand uh, to energy. Uh, the Egyptian government uh, put, a criteria, uh, put a priority uh, to generate energy from renewable resources. This includes uh, wind farms uh, along the Red Sea uh, coastline and solar energy and so on. Uh, once this energy is being produced, they need to be transferred to, to consumers. And this involves big constructions of power lines that uh, go for uh, tens of thousands of kilometers. Uh, those power lines, of course, um, cause fragmentation in the flyway uh, habitats along uh, the Red Sea. And we are working closely with the government and different stakeholders to restore the flyway habitat. And this um, includes 
many uh, mitigation measures, for example, uh, some insulation uh, for power lines that cause electrocutions, or maybe some reflectors um, uh, installation to prevent collision against power lines, and also very specific programs of uh, shutdown on demand and the wind farm turbines to uh, mitigate the impact of collision of birds to the wind farms. Those are the main big scale uh, project that we are working on, like on the national level. Thank you so much, Khalid. Uh, moving on to Toga. Um, Toga, I, I recently had a discussion with Fadzai Matsvimbo, and she mentioned about you know some of the work that you guys are doing. Amazing, amazing work with the vultures. They are involving local communities, you know, in some of the restoration projects. And could you please take us through uh, the kind of work that you're doing uh, out there at Bad Life, Zimbabwe? Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Diblex. Um, we are doing quite a lot of work in terms of restoration. And um, one of the areas where we are working is the Drifford and Grasslands. I think you can see my background. So that is the Drifford and Grasslands. It's an IBA and it's also a Ramsar site. And in that area, uh, there are human people, I mean, human settlement there and also biodiversity that exists there. So it's a coexistence of biodiversity and humans and I think you can really imagine the scenario or the situation there. It's a win-win situation whereby people need to survive and also biodiversity need to survive. So we've been doing some work in terms of uh, restoring some of the degraded wetlands in this uh, drift and grasslands. It's located on the central Zimbabwe. So we've initiated this project uh, in the, under a Darwin funded um, uh, project. And um, we, I think I will share more details in terms of what we, uh, in terms of the work we did, but we managed to restore quite a number of uh, of wetlands successfully um, in the area, and we've been uh, we got uh, some positive results from this um, uh, restoration work. Then uh, probably I also want to highlight another area where we did some restoration is the it's another setup, uh, the Chimanimani Mountains, which is located in the eastern Afro-Montane biodiversity hotspot. So. If you uh, imagine the map of Zimbabwe, we're talking of the Eastern Highlands of Zimbabwe, which is a mountainous area. And uh, in 2019, that area was hit by a devastating uh, cyclone Idai. And uh, there were lots of damages in terms of the mountain forest ecosystems and also loss of human beings in that particular area. So we initiated um, restoration on, on those degraded lands, opened up lands. Uh, with the local communities uh, as a response to uh, those negative impacts of um, Cyclone Idai. So it's something that is ongoing um, uh, based on the available resources, but we still have lots of areas uh, that need a, a restoration, but we have actually initiated some restoration activities uh, in this area. And for your own interest, you can see that it's an area that was hit in 2019 by Cyclone Idai, and recently, we have uh, another disaster, COVID-19, while the area that they, they, they were trying to recover, uh, then another disaster also comes in. So there are so many challenges in the Chimanimani uh, mountains. In the, in the, it's a key biodiversity area um, that supports sensitive uh, ecosystems and the biodiversity because it's a unique ecosystem that are found in the Chimanimani area. Thank you. I think I can also share more details later on. Thank you. Sure. 
Sure, thank you so much, Toga, for that. Um, moving on to Rafael Latte. Um, Rafael, what are some of the restoration projects you have initiated as a Ghana Wildlife Society? Okay, so um, at Ghana Wildlife Society, we've been promoting forest and um, landscape restoration through mainly through policy and education. Um, also direct restoration, but we only started recently, that's in um, 2018. And so um, before 2018, through education, we were encouraging people to, people and students to plant trees, you know, and then um, plant more trees and then um, restore their, um, their communities. Most of the communities um, that you find, the rural communities have degraded their landscape and converted them, slowly converting them into farmlands. And so we try to encourage them to be planting some tree species with their um, arable crops to restore those landscapes. But then in 2018, um, we started our first uh, restoration, big restoration project to restore the um, Yongwa and Saposu forest reserves. Uh, we decided that we're going to restore these degraded landscapes um, with um, an endemic tree species known as the Tabutiella gentai. Um, so this tree species is critically endangered and it's endemic to Ghana. And it has very high um, ecological importance. So yeah, so basically we've been able to restore about um, four hectares of degraded forest. And we are looking to um, increase um, um, these efforts. So I, I will talk about it in details um, sometime later in this conversation. But then basically, yes, this has, these are some of the things that we've been doing at GWS. Thank you. Thank you so much, Raphael. Um, to return to you, Clara, is there any project? I know you've mentioned a couple of projects there uh, as you were starting. Is there any in particular that you'd like to pinpoint, you know, and highlight its importance? It's important, sorry, and the kind of impacts that you have been able uh, to achieve so far. Right, thank you so much. Um, I'll be highlighting our restoration efforts on um, a key biodiversity area and a Ramza site. And this is a 3,300 square kilometer swamp. It is the Lukanga swamp located in central Zambia. It's an important bed area because it, is, it houses approximately 360 bed species and other biodiversity include um, uh, different species of reptiles and uh, mammals, and also it contributes to about 10% of Zambia's national fish. So you see just how important this site is. Um, our restoration efforts in this area were initiated from our routine monitoring in these um, IBA KBAs, and we did notice as far back as 2009 that the area had been invest, infested with the invasive um, aquatic Salvinia molesta, which is native to Brazil. And over the years, we noticed uh, because it's an aquatic, it's an aquatic fen, so it covers the surface of the water. So over the years, it kept on covering much more open water. And as a result, we realized that the habitat for biodiversity was shrinking especially the open water loving biodiversity, including beds. 
in addition to that, the weed survives mainly on oxygen. So it has the potential to um, deplete the oxygen levels in the water. That ultimately has an effect on the fish species that have now moved off to sites that are more open area where they can access sunlight as well as oxygen. And the weed creates a very, very good habitat for breeding of mosquitoes. So you can only imagine um, the malaria infestation around the site. The swamp, as I mentioned earlier, is very important for, it's an important fishery, but also it's used for navigation from one area to the other. And because of the type of weed in question, that is um, a floating fin, it makes navigation extremely difficult for the local community members that use um, banana boats to paddle through. So an area that would take, uh, before the infestation, an area that would take 30 minutes would, by the time it was 2013, take about two hours to get to, to the same amount, uh, to cover the same amount of distance. Um, the habitat was slowly getting degraded. And as we saw, we decided to uh, look at interventions that could restore it. One that came immediately and what we implemented was a manual removal with the local community. So they would go on site and manually remove this weed, put it on the side and burn it or sometimes just dry it. But the downside for that intervention in 2013 was it, um, what dried out was blown back into the wetland by the wind and it blossomed again and it was a more agitated infestation. But also the, the water depth in the swamp is quite different and not all areas can very quite easily be accessible. It's characterized by a lot of phragmitis, which makes it very difficult for the local community members to get into the reeds and remove all of the weed that infested the area. So with that having failed, we, we invested in a, a biological control of the same weed. This was funded by the Darwin Initiative of the UK government. And um, this was done together with BedLife International. So this project particularly started in 2017. We, in, we, we explored quite a number of um, biological control agents that we could use some of which being hippo, but the area being um, a place that has got um, high, which has got good number of uh, people living around there, the hippo was not an option because we assumed that they were definitely going to eat it and that would be the end of our intervention. And so the little um, weevil or the beetle that we decided to use to control this weed is a, um, is a host specific weevil. And this means that it only feeds on the Salvinia molester and nothing else. The question has always been what happens to this little beetle? Does it affect the fish? Does it, what happens when you drink it along with the water? How small it is, how big is it? It's a really, really tiny beetle. And because it's host specific, when the weed has been controlled or depleted, it starves to death because it doesn't have any other thing to feed on. And that's why it was it was recommended and an, as, and an option. In Zambia, it's a, it's a big thing if you're going to import or bring into a system a biological agent because it's equally uninvasive in that system. So there's a lot of looking into what factors around that or what is going to be the impact. So 
the one upside was we were allowed to bring that in because of its uh, host specificity nature. Um, with that intervention having been started, the weevils having been imported and put onto the and being um, put onto the site, we currently have been able to recover quite some very significant piece of um, of the habitat that has been restored. This is about 2,000 square kilometers out of the 2,300 of the swamp. We we had to measure the impact of this intervention using various methods. And this included checking on how it's affecting biodiversity, as well as looking at um, what, what is the site actually looking at at the moment, because we were looking at it as having been degraded or having been covered up, a lot of places having been covered up. We have been able to um, see quite a number of canals within the area being open water. And because of that, fishermen have got more ground to do their fishing and um, the amount the fish catch has now improved by about 72% from, from, from when we started the intervention in 2017. We have been able to introduce this uh, biological control into about 2000 square kilometers. And uh, because of the places that have been cleared, social activities that had been halted like um, swimming and also navigation have come back onto site and we see quite a lot of excited community members going back in there and swimming back and also navigation has become easy with the amount of time that they have to take to, to, to navigate from place to place. So um, this has also cleared areas which have been dubbed as breeding fish breeding sites by the fisheries department. And they have been able to confirm that there's been a significant improvement in that area of um, the fish breeding. Thank you, Clara. Uh, we all know that invasive uh, species can be very devastating to an ecosystem. And as you've mentioned, a lot of uh, lives here are at stake, whether it's the local fishermen, whether it's the 360 bird species, the reptiles and the mammals which breed, feed and, you know, uh, rest in these areas. Uh, I'm curious to understand what are some of the challenges uh, on the ground challenges that you encountered while, uh, you know, uh, taking uh, through that process of clearing uh, and introducing all these biological methods to clear out the invasive species and ensure that the, eco the, the ecosystem rather is, is restored uh, fully. Right, um, I'm happier to look back and think there's actually been more successes than challenges. And this is because we have invested a lot in involving the local communities as participants on the project. We have uh, partnered with them. We have trained the community members on how they can get engaged on these activities. And now, even if it's one also of the one of the problems that we are equally suffering from the COVID nineteen, the project intervention or uh, the activities on the project are currently still ongoing on the field because the local community members have been able to learn the skill. They have been able to work around and they also know exactly what they need to look out for. Um, and this has uh, been an upside, especially that they understand that they have so much to lose from this area. It's an area that has kept them there for a lot of years. It supports about 22,500 um, fishing households. 
So you can imagine the effect on that in relation to the poverty if there's nothing, if there's nothing that goes on in that area. Um, on the challenges side, I would say uh, one of the years we were unable to do some of the surveys on site because the area was had really very low water levels, which made our own navigation very difficult. But I think that gave us a true picture of what the local communities actually go through. So while ourselves we would use an engine powered boat, they have to paddle through all of that area. So the mud and the low water level made a bit of um, a bit of our work difficult. But um, it's it's extremely been a success and. It's, it's science that you can see on the ground. So while we are looking at it from the side of the beds, the local community members can actually see the habitat getting cleared. They can actually see how the malaria, the mosquito levels are going down. They can actually see how much fish they're able to catch. They can relate that to the income. So while we look more on the scientific and the people on the ground actually are testifying on how much of a success this has been so far. Fantastic. And how crucial was it to involve the community members from each of, it, of those stages of, uh, you know, uh, that project? It wasn't very difficult because um, we started our monitoring in this area way back. And we initially had one local site support group, which was our entry point. But also before the start of the project, we already had created good rapport with the local traditional leaders. And so the consent for this kind of intervention was not difficult. The anxiety was, uh, what is this? Uh, what is this beetle? What is this weevil coming? What is it going to do? The bigger question was, when are we going to get a full restoration of the wetland? So those kind of questions are actually what helped us to be able to stimulate so much more interest in the local community members so that even if we are away from site, they're able to see the progress and they are able to talk about it within their communities. So it wasn't, it wasn't difficult to engage the community. And uh, looking at how much work needed to be done, we, were, we trained about 20 local community members and this is uh, inclusive of some local traditional leaders as well as um, some government officials who are the, the fisheries officers based on site. These were involved in the mass rearing of these weevils. So the mass rearing process basically was mass rearing this biological agent away from the site and introducing it in various points on, on, the, on, the, on the swamp. So they were able to, to make sure that they are constantly providing the weed to these weevils in the mass rearing sites. Because remember, like I said, the weevils do not feed on anything else. So away from the site, they needed to be provided with constant um, fresh weed and also introduced into various areas. But also with the involvement of the fisheries department, they incorporated that weevil introduction program as part of their bigger um, fishery, fisheries management plan for the swamp. So we had a lot more efforts coming on and a lot more people getting involved. And with the evidence that was um, that has been gained even up to now, there's a lot more of traction that has been and a lot more of interest that has been attracted from the local community members because while it's a really, really tiny beetle, they can see the bigger effort or they can now appreciate 
what it is able to do. So everybody is happy to be a part and everyone wants to, to, to work with us. So you find a, local, a lot of local community members say, no, as we work for Birdwatch Zambia, and this is because they want to be a part of the intervention, which is doing just fine in, within their community. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Clara. And moving on to uh, Khalid. Khalid, which project will you pinpoint and, uh, uh, and could you take us through uh, its, important, uh, its importance and the impacts that you have been able to achieve on the ground? Yes, uh, I'd like to talk uh, about our project in the energy sector, but I, I would like to make sure that, uh, do you hear some noise in the background or everything is okay? Everything is okay, sir. Please continue. So, uh, if I may share uh, also maybe some slides, if this is possible. In the interest of time, yes. Yeah, briefly, please, if you can take a, take us through that uh, 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 quickly. Yeah, I think it will be okay. Yeah. All right. You see my screen now. Yeah. So uh, the whole point is uh, that Egypt located in uh, the second most important flyway uh, of migratory soaring birds with 1.5 million birds migrate every season through Egypt, as you see from this map. Uh, as I said, Egypt is expanding the energy production, uh, production projects uh, like from wind and solar energy and so on. And this involves constructing some of the huge power lines and uh, that extend for thousands of kilometers. It looks something like this along on the flyway, and uh, those are very, very, uh, very threatening barriers uh, that uh, hinder the migration uh, flow of birds. Uh, what we do that we basically would like to understand the impact of. Infrastructure on bird migration, and we do study, uh, we do some research on the ground to understand this. We have two types of threats uh, from power lines that uh, includes some collision and electrocution for birds. This results in in bird fatality, of course, in different places. Uh, what we do is we are surveying. Uh, as much as we can, power lines, hundreds of kilometers using cars and surveying uh, uh, six meters uh, from each side under each power line that we do. Uh, so far, we could uh, survey more than 350 kilometers to be able to understand which areas or which segment of the power lines cause cause. Uh, more mortality for birds so that we take action. This is how the methodology looks like and imagine this kind of work is uh, um, very expensive because it involves using the four by four vehicles in a very remote areas that in most of the cases uh, no accommodation facilities are provided so it is, uh, it is uh, effort consuming and money consuming uh, project. This is, uh, one, uh, this is our first results. We could survey uh, in this part uh, of the Red Sea uh, about 300 uh, kilometers 
and the red segments indicates high mortality of birds. After we survey all of this, we then uh, do a communication with the, with the government and the, uh, the company uh, of electricity transmission so that they can take an action to, uh, to mitigate the impact of power line on birds. They can install sort of uh, like reflectors like this one so the power lines are more visible to birds so they avoid collision something like this. After we install that also, we do again surveys to measure the impact of the mitigation on birds. Uh, we are having very, very good results. We uh, could save, I think, a lot of birds during the last two years, and we are continuing in surveying uh, power lines in Egypt. Um, this is our uh, main project that I, I wanted to share with you today. Thank you so much, Khalid. Uh, you've mentioned that you, the people that uh, the surveyors uh, cover a, a lots of many kilometers, and it's uh, sometimes it's time consuming and money are consuming. What are some of the other challenges that you face on the ground? You know, as you're working towards uh, restoring these uh, flyways for birds, and you know, ensuring that their migration is is safe and secure. Uh, also, one of the main challenges is communication because power lines are being built, as I said, uh, in very, very long distances. And in some cases, they uh, cut some private lands. In other cases, some military bases and so on. And of course, for those, uh, for those situations, we cannot continue the survey. So uh, this kind of project uh, made us uh, work hard to establish good communication with many stakeholders. It was, it was not an easy task in the beginning to, uh, to find contact in different sectors, government and private sectors, the landowners and so on. But uh, once we found that, we found a lot of support also from different, uh, different stakeholders. So that indeed was a challenge, but we are, uh, we are getting through it slowly. Okay. Yeah, but else than this, I would say most yeah. of stakeholders, when they know the purpose of the research, they are more cooperative and helpful. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Carly. Then uh, moving on to Gasheru. Gasheru, which project uh, are you currently working on as Nature Kenya? And could you pinpoint its importance and uh, the kind of impact that you have been able to achieve? Thank you, Diblex. I uh, hope you can hear me clearly. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, so one of our key programs on forest and landscape restoration is anchored within one of our key water towers here in the country called Mount Kenya. Mount Kenya Forest is one of the largest water towers in our, in our country, providing a significant um, uh, water for hydropower generation, for drinking, for domestic use. Uh, uh, sustaining uh, quite a quite a big hectare, around two million uh, two million hectares of uh, of irrigation irrigated land. So therefore, there is significant potential for food. So therefore, seeing that Mount Kenya is one of the ecosystems that is a key pillar for Kenya's economic development, 
this site has faced significant challenges, mainly of deforestation, because given that is one of the protected areas, there has been limited um, limited focus towards it uh, and investment from government uh, towards maintaining this 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 uh, ecosystem, and therefore jeopardizing the economic development of our country. So Nature Kenya has been working within that landscape, trying to spur partnerships and uh, and uh, from grassroots to 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 national level partnerships towards supporting forest and forest restoration within Mount Kenya because overall what you have observed from studies is that there's increased uh, uh, siltation within the rivers which has been depicted clearly by the water companies by increased water treatment costs in the past uh, 15 years there's been increased siltation within the, the hydroelectric dams, which then the cost, then the government ends up going to fossil fuel power generation options. And all this is, is all because there's no uh, deliberate effort towards forest restoration within Mount Kenya. So we carried out a study within Mount Kenya, basically to try and inform the policy and also provide the facts uh, to, the, to, to our stakeholders and, and duty bearers to see the essence and the importance of forest restoration, where we identified uh, around 6,200 hectares uh, of, of degraded areas that was in urgent need of restoration. And we have worked closely with the community forest associations, the forest adjacent community to propagate uh, tree seedlings and facilitating them to do uh, to actually go into the forest and actually do tree planting. And to date, we have actually achieved around 1800, 1800 hectares of, uh, of, of degraded forest areas, uh, uh, forest areas restored. And you're monitoring this and providing these facts to the government. And using this platform is also catalyzing private sector investment, our private sector engagement, because there's limited financing as one of the, one of the uh, following the situation analysis, there's limited financing into forest, forest restoration. And given that a lot of our financing was uh, external from development partners, USAID, Danidas, and et cetera. And we, we are catalyzing, given that Kenya now is a middle income country, catalyzing private sector to invest more into landscape restoration and landscape management, because overall, their sustainability, their business sustainability is anchored within these landscapes that we, 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 are, we are working towards restoration. And within that partnership, we have seen private sector coming in to invest uh, uh, in, in their sustainability programs, to invest into forest, Mount Kenya forest restoration. And as I said, within that, we have been able to achieve around 1800, hect 1800 hectares, which we continue to monitor. And uh, we, we, can, we are using uh, open source uh, GIS tools and on-ground verification and seeing how the trees are faring on and providing the requisite uh, support towards the communities that are maintaining these trees to increase the survival rate of the trees. And this itself is showing uh, significant uh, um, results in towards biodiversity where you have seen areas that are being restored, forest, forest, forest specialist species are coming back. Areas that have been restored in the past five years, uh, we have seen water quality improving, uh, where the water is much more clearer and much, uh, there's, there's less uh, erosion. And we see this as a proxy towards uh, restoration of other ecosystem services uh, within the forest. And this we pride in because if we restore Mount Kenya, 
then we are supporting overall uh, the economic development of our country and ensuring that business and economic growth within Kenya is sustained. Thank you, Dibrex. Thank you so much, Gashiro. And before you go, uh, before we, we move on to our next uh, participant, who is um, uh, uh, Raphael, uh, could you take us through some of the challenges that you have encountered while you know working towards restoring this pristine ecosystem, which is Mount Kenya? I think one of the key challenges has been financing. Uh, 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 financing because uh, um, financing uh, because most of our most of the financing which comes into the country is external. So local financing is not readily available to support forest restoration. The community is willing, but they do not have the resources to actually support, to, to, to ensure that uh, forest restoration is, is achieved. And then secondly, is uh, within our policy frameworks, we lack the incentives for private sector to actively participate in forest restoration. And that's one of the approach, that's one of the key things that we are working towards to try and inform policy uh, towards providing this incentive for private sector to engage in uh, forest restoration. Uh, for example, in places like Costa Rica, where they have uh, approaches where the private, private investors are able to put, put money into restoration. And then thirdly, as uh, Nad, uh, our colleague from Zambia has mentioned, there's also some issues of invasive plant species, and that is, is being managed and uh, has its own uh, has its own demands in management and uh, and and uh, and uh, and control, which we are working with uh, with the local communities towards uh, ensuring that uh, this is is sustainably managed. Okay, thank you. And I'm curious to know, uh, Gasheru, is Ngarendare tr Trust part of the Mount Kenya ecosystem? Indeed, Ngarendare Trust is one of the one 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 um, is one of the forest blocks within Mount Kenya ecosystem. Um, where, uh, which is another northernmost part uh, within the ecosystem. Why do you ask, Felix? Because the locals there, we saw what they did burning the, the, the famous, you know, canopy walk, and uh, they were highlighting some issues which are to, they, they see, there seems to be a disconnect uh, in, in the way that they are involved. Uh, could you please expound more on that, if you have any knowledge on so, that? So here there is, Community forest associations, which is um, which are members who are living adjacent to the forest, but Mount Kenya itself supports a wider community away from uh, from the just buffer zone of the forest, around 20, 10, 20 kilometers of the buffer of Mount Kenya, and people come from very far. And Mount Kenya is one of the uh, which is the drought refuge place for for pastoralist communities in the lowlands. So, so the thing is. What happened in Karendare because of this pastoralists coming from the lowlands, bringing their livestock into the forest, and not agreeing within the system to avoid areas, uh, avoid areas that have been, which have been, um, uh, which are in different management, uh, management, uh, management uh, mechanisms, that cost, that cost a disconnect or a, a rift between the CFA and this committee and these other committee members. Which now made uh, made a big uh, a big uh, loss of investment within Garendare, where there was uh, upheaval and conflict. People burnt a few number a number of infrastructure, etc. But these are things which are being managed at at different levels uh, with different stakeholders because there's a governance structure and there's also the management structure of the forest, which then 
once everyone is informed far and wide because Mount Kenya provides water from from here and six, 700 kilometers downstream into the Tana Delta, the water needs to arrive there. And if we do not manage that entire landscape, not only Mount Kenya, but the entire landscape that it's supporting, it, those conflicts will always be observed. And therefore there is, there, there is need, uh, we have been promoting towards intergovernmental or inter-county inter -county relationships and inter-county coordination towards this cross-boundary cross uh, natural resource uh, systems in our country. Okay, thank you so much, Gasheru, for, for highlighting and explaining that in detail. Um, moving on to Raphael. Raphael, could you pinpoint any, any, any of the projects that you're working towards uh, as Ghana Wildlife Society? Uh, you mentioned forest restoration. Could you take us through uh, some of the activities that go on there and uh, their, their impacts? Okay, thank you. So uh, GWS in partnership with KNUST, which is the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, uh, the Forest Research Institutes of Ghana and the Forest Trade Commission is currently um, um, intensifying the conservation efforts of um, um, the Tabotiela Gentile. So I'll give a brief um, description of the Tabotiela Gentile or detail about the Tabotiela Gentile plant. So Tabotiela Gentile is critically endangered and it has the highest conservation priority in Ghana at the moment. It is um, a species that is geographically restricted to the dry, rocky forests um, area. So usually around the Eastern and then the Ashanti and Volta regions of, of, of Ghana. Now, um, the main goal of this project is to improve the conservation status of Tabotella Gentile, which is now critically endangered. And in order to do that, we are trying to increase the population and then the genetic variation um, of the species. So um, earlier this year, we first embarked on um, a nationwide inventory to basically understand and know and ascertain the current distribution, population distribution of the species. And during that exercise, we also use that opportunity to, to pick some seeds from the field and then come back and raise about 50,000 seedlings in our nurseries. So we have 5,000 um, seedlings in our nursery in Yongwa, where the restoration exercise is going. And then our partner KNUST, which is a university in, the, um, in Kumase in the Ashanti region, is also housing the other 50,000. Um, so it's, oh, it's roughly 55,000, so over 50,000 um, seedlings. Um, so, we decided we chose Yongwa Forest Reserve and Saposu Forest Reserve because um, that is the area where you can find this Tabutiel agenda. And we, we thought that we were going to restore those, um, the Yongwa, the degraded portions of the Yongwa Forest Reserve. Why, why don't we use Tabutiel agenda since it's from that area? You know, we didn't want to restore the, the, the degraded landscapes or the degraded areas of the forest reserve with um, an outside species. You know, so um, we we started so far. We've been able to um, restore an area of about four thousand hectares. Um, Yongwa Forest Reserve itself is about seven hundred and seventy-seven hectares, and then it's just only a, um, a few portion that has been degraded. But then it's very significant. It's very that, the portions that have been degraded is very important, and we've been able to restore about four thousand of of those areas. Uh, we integrated the Tabotella gentile species 
into a modified tundra system. So what I mean is we gave the, the tree species, the seedlings to farmers within the communities around the forest reserve. So they plant the trees on their farms, you know, and then they, they, they plant it alongside their arable crops. So plantain, maize, and since um, the Tabutella gentile species a leguminous species, it you know, fixes nitrogen into the soil. So it helps their crops to grow, you know, and then they don't have to use, they, it cuts down their production cost because now they don't have to buy artificial fertilizer to, you know, to um, grow their crops. And then also, it also helps us to, you know, restore. So we had a deal, um, an agreement with them that once the uh, Tabutella gentile reaches a certain height, they will now have to vacate that land and that land will now be added to the forest reserve. So the communities, they farm around the fringes of the, of the forest reserve. And um, you know, their farming activities sometimes even enters a little into the forest reserve, which is also not helpful. So in order to do that, we decided to use the modified tundra system to, to, to curb that. So um, yeah, we, we've, we've done the inventory, we've raised the seedlings, and right now we are also doing um, awareness creation. You know, we have to um, explain or create awareness, sensitize the community members on the importance of um, the Tabutella Gentile. Why, it's, why is it important? Why do we need to conserve Tabutella Gentile? So we've done some awareness creation. So at the farmers, the, the, the farmers, the, our target groups has been farmers, traditional authorities, school children, and then just the whole, the entire community as a whole. So with farmers, obviously, they were, we engaged them, they would help us to plant the Tabutella Genta in their farms. And then with the school children, you know, we are um, engaging them in, uh, on the importance of planting trees, you know, and the importance of restoring that, yeah, degraded landscapes. So we engaged them in pla um, planting the Tabutella Genta also in their school compound. You know, and then we've also added some other tree species to it, to, to the Tabutella gentile, and they plant it on their school compounds. We even give some to them to take home to plant in their houses. And then with the traditional authorities, we engage them on the importance that of, of the Tabutella gentile. You know, because Tabutella gentile is endemic and is critically endangered, we have a lot of people coming into Ghana to do research on the species. So it says as you know, some of the tourist attractions. So it brings a lot of people to the communities where you can find Tabutella Gentile. So we pitched that to the, um, the traditional leaders. And then, yeah, they, they seem to, yeah, they seem to like the idea. They, they are helping us, they're supporting us to um, conserve um, this, this um, species. So, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, the main, okay, so we, Sir. Okay, yeah, go ahead, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry, carry on, carry on, Raphael, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, you... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, no, you can go ahead, you can ask, I feel like you wanted to ask. Okay, I, I wanted to ask, what, what are some of the challenges you have encountered and how are you managing to overcome them as you go by, you know, uh, restoring okay. these forest reserves? Okay, okay so um, we've, we've only had one challenge. It has been successes throughout. It has been really successful because we've been able to sensitize the community communities on the importance of the video to restore the beginning landscapes. But then there's this one particular challenge, which is climate change and it's with the rains, you know. 
because we we have fifty thousand seedlings sitting in the nursery. We need to transplant. We need to take it to the field to restore. But then we need to restore when it's raining. But because of climate change, the rains the rain patterns have become very erratic. You know, we can't predict when we ex we expect the rain. The rains don't come, and when we don't expect the rains, that's when. So that's when we we you know we the rains come. So last year we we were supposed to plant, but then the rains didn't show up, you know. And then so we we we've transferred what we're supposed to plant last year to this year. And so this month, actually, funny enough, this month we will be going to the field to plant. Um, hopefully, we will see how how much we will be able to plant. Um, so yeah, so that our major challenges has been the rain. And we've planted, so far, so far we've planted 2,000 seedlings. Yeah, so currently there are 2,000 seedlings um, at the sub, um, Yongba Forest Reserve. And you know, we monitor the changes using GIS, you know, um, and remote sensing to, you know, give us a, a quick visualization analysis for like um, effective management of the, of, 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 the, of the species in the field. And it also provides us like a spectrum of for detailing the arrangement of the species on the field, you know, you know, which you know presents an area of opportunities to like decipher mortality and then uh, successes at a glance. Yeah. So basically, yeah, that's basically. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Raphael. And uh, returning to you, Toga, uh, which project will you pinpoint? You've mentioned about restoring degraded wetlands. Could you take us through one project, two projects that you're working on, and uh, how impactful that has been, and uh, highlight some of the challenges you have encountered and how you're managing to overcome them uh, day by day? Okay, uh, thank you very much, uh, Diblet. Um, I think I'll take you back to wetlands ecosystem. Uh, I talked about the drift on grasslands. Um, it's an IBA. Uh, the size of the IBA is 20,000 hectares. And again, as I've mentioned, it's also a Ramsar site. And the area that is a Ramsar site is more than that, uh, the 20,000 hectares. Um, then I'll, I think I'll just give a brief background of the area. Um, this area supports uh, globally threatened uh, biodiversity. The two crane species, they are supported in the area, also the tropical bird and many other specially protected species of birds. Uh, besides the biodiversity, um, the area uh, also it, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, provides uh, important ecosystem services to the people. Um, the drift and grasslands, um, is located on the central part of the country and it forms uh, the central watershed um, of the country. And we do have so many streams originating uh, from this area going southwards, west, southeast. Uh, and then so it, it is very, very key. And it also sustains various communities downstream, not only people living uh, in this area. So it's one of the important areas uh, in the country. Um, then in terms of um, threats, as I've highlighted earlier on, that uh, biodiversity and people coexist in the area. So it's different from a protected area. If you look like a national park that is fenced, but it's an area where we do have uh, people living together with uh, globally threatened biodiversity. 
So in order to save biodiversity, so it's like a win-win situation. You also need to save for to improve people's lives, uh, livelihoods. And at the same time, we've, uh, we also need to ensure that we maintain and sustain the biodiversity found in that area. So I would like to highlight some of the major threats uh, in this area. They include uh, cultivation. As, as I told you that um, the, the, the area, uh, you know, people, they also need to survive and they also tend to go to wetlands, cultivate wetlands in order to improve their food security. And one of the thing that, things that I would like to point out is that um, um, the soil is quite is poor in some of these areas where people are supposed to do cultivation. And then that is why they also tend to go to wetland to cultivate in order to get food. So it's one of the biggest challenges there. And in order to save biodiversity, we need to create a balance between uh, the human livelihoods and also biodiversity conservation. Then the other threat, uh, we the area face uh, is um, the issue of overgrazing in terms of livestock. So it has got a negative impact on the, on the wetlands. And um, then the third one, the third major threat is also the issue of fire and the looking the, at the grasslands, especially during the dry season, you know, fires can spread very fast. And with the global warming, whereby we, we are experiencing more of these uh, warm days, um, uh, the grass and also the other biomass actually becomes more drier and drier and excessive winds, you will imagine that uh, when, whenever you have an outbreak of fire, it will actually destroy uh, uh, huge, I mean, uh, hectares there. So it's, it's really, it's really a major threat. So what we have been doing in this area in response to biodiversity conservation, we have been implementing a project titled Community Livelihood and Capacity Support for Securing Zimbabwe's uh, Wetland Biodiversity. And this project is funded by the Darwin, uh, the Darwin Initiative. And this is where we are doing um, the restoration work on wetlands. And I would like to point out that um, uh, wetland restoration is just a component in the project. So there are so many uh, activities that are taking place. So now I'll zoom on to wetland restoration. As I violated that uh, there's a lot of um, there's some wetland degradation. So in our restoration, restoration approach, we have been actually targeting the main sensitive parts of the wetland and we protect that area and we call it a SIP. And we have been actually fencing off uh, that area so that the wetland, I mean, uh, that SIP will continue to feed in water into the entire, uh, into the entire wetland. So there are so many points are uh, within the Driffondent grasslands, those SIPs. And they are, I, would, I would say that the SIP is the main source of the wetland. It's like the heart of the wetland where water actually comes from. So we actually protected them by fencing off them so that we exclude especially the livestock there because there were issues of degradation as I've mentioned uh, earlier on. So up to now, we have already uh, protected more than 50 hectares um, of those uh, SIPs that we have identified. And I would, I'd also like to mention that this has been uh, a process, you know, the issue of fencing 
areas within an area which is a grassy area or within an area that is communally owned, you really need to engage a lot with the community so that they really understand the process and the importance of fencing such areas. So we did, uh, we went through all those different uh, stages, levels of community education and awareness involving communities in all these aspects and also some trainings. And uh, we did all these, um, uh, these stages. So it was really a success. And um, these wetlands, they're also used by the, I mean, the two crane species uh, that are found in the Drifondent grasslands, uh, especially for breeding and foraging uh, purposes. And I would say that uh, from the areas that we have faced the sieves, uh, we have seen that they have been recolonized by the breeding pairs of cranes. And within a period of uh, eight months, we started the restoration um, last year in August, and by February or March, we have already seen some positive results, whereby um, we have seen five of the sites that were protected, they recovered within a short space of time, and they were actually recolonized by the breeding pairs of cranes. And we recorded successful breeding in the last survey of, ground, uh, of, of cranes that we conducted uh, in March 2021. We have already recorded successful uh, breeding from those uh, restored areas. So it was really one of the major impacts today. And I would like to say that um, we have been implementing uh, this work in partnership uh, with other two uh, civil society organizations and also the uh, local government institutions. Two of them have been very mainly uh, active in the, in the project. And we'll have also BedLife International on board as well. So the issue of partnership has been also helpful in terms of sharing knowledge and ideas uh, as we were actually embarking uh, on, this, uh, on this work. So this is uh, ongoing work. And um, as I have already highlighted that wetland restoration is part of the project. I mean, it's just a component within the project. And there are also other uh, project activities such as uh, community livelihood providing alternatives to communities, a lot of uh, biodiversity monitoring trainings, and also the biodiversity monitoring. So this is also uh, ongoing within the drift and grasslands. And we are also still measuring the impacts as well in terms of the impacts of uh, wetland restorations to community livelihoods and also to other communities who are not living in this area. So they are all beneficiaries of this uh, restoration exercise. And also in terms of uh, this area, um, it's also important in terms of uh, climate regulation. You will see that uh, the area has got a, a, some, a sort of a local climate within that area. It's quite different. If you move away, maybe 20 kilometers away from the area, you will experience a different uh, environment today. So our wetland restoration has been also being uh, contributing towards, uh, I mean, climate change adaptation and also improving resilience of the wetland ecosystems to climate change. So this is, uh, as I've said, this is ongoing work and we are still uh, working on it with all the stakeholders um, engaged. So- Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Toga, for, for that extensive, uh, uh, you know, uh, coverage on, on that, uh, you know, uh, issue. And uh, very briefly, uh, uh, Clara, could you uh, please take us through uh, what sort, uh, how, have, uh, how partnerships and collaborations have helped uh, your conservation uh, efforts uh, in, in Zambia? Thank you. So we have um, been engaging with various stakeholders and collaborating with them. Um, many partners on our project. Our project had um, a, a steering committee that was composed of both government and non-governmental organizations. And away from that, we worked with the communities uh, which, on which some of them were trained to be part of our, our project activities. And the larger community was involved on the, on the on the awareness raising program. So we sensitized the traditional leaders, the local community members. Uh, we went on to talk to schools. This was extended to people that lived off of, of the site because the site is not protected so anyone can access it. So as much people as we got involved, um, the better. So we did talk to or raise awareness to approximately 5,000 um, individuals. The, 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 the benefit or the impact of this partnership and collaboration has been that Bedwatch Zambia has been invited to sit on the National Steering Committee for Biodiversity. This is a national steering committee that looks at issues to do with biodiversity and management of invasive species being a part of it. And this has been stimulated from the work that we have currently been doing on the restoration work. In addition, we have um, two government institutions that are developing conservation plans for the project site, as well as um, the catchment. And these two government institutions are using the lessons that uh, we have learned and also the impact of our project to incorporate into the, the documents that are currently being formulated. We have also been um, involved with formulation of um, documentation that has been um, sent through to, gov to relevant government institutions. And these are documentation that are policy advisory notes that are seeking to um, acquire or are seeking to protect the current site. I mentioned earlier that it is both a Ramza site, a key biodiversity area, but unfortunately it is not a protected area. So we have, uh, with, the, with other stakeholders, been putting together some documentation and highly most of the work that we've been doing there are being used as, uh, as, 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 um, as proof or are they are being used to influence the decision of, um, of the policymakers. So um, in addition to that, we have also engaged, we have also been involved on other related invasive species work. And this is around the catchment of our project area and also areas far off where the same invasive weed is um, being a problem. And because of the effort that we have put in, and um, this has currently been the largest intervention in Zambia for the restoration of um, a big wetland and in relation to the weed in question, the Salvinia molester. So there's a lot of traction and interest from other people or other communities that live around areas where they are suffering from the same, the same threats and impacts of the same weed. So that's, that's basically what has been the impact of our partnership and collaboration.
Thank you so much, Clara. Gasheru, how, how, how has partnerships enabled you to, to uh, you know, um, uh, conserve the Mount Kenya ecosystem and restore some of the degraded uh, landscapes around that uh, area? I think for us, I think one of the key element of partnerships, especially with local communities, is enhancing um, the sustainable management and ensuring that restoration efforts within within Mount Kenya, within Mount Kenya forests are actually achieved with, with the requisite impacts being recorded. Two uh, is partnerships at, at the global level, uh, especially through the Bad Life Partnership, where we there is um, there is opportunity for skills learning and skills sharing within the network within uh, the global partnership with partners in uh, in in Brazil partners in places in Asia and others within Africa uh, where we are cross learning and uh, uh, and sharing skills about uh, forest and landscape restoration which has been very helpful under the forest accelerator program and then. Three is a partnership within uh, within donor within the donor communities uh, where we have been able to uh, get financing uh, program financing from donors like the Darwin Initiatives, which have been mentioned within within this within this call, Critical Ecosystem Partnership Fund, Wallland Trust, among others. And then finally. Uh, is the partnership building within uh, within the private sector within our country having demonstrated the impact of forest restoration and having encouraged and catalyzed the discussions in the private sector we have seen now partnerships within that sector uh, and uh, with nature kenya and local communities towards forest restoration and those partnerships are very uh, important overall because by having that grassroots through to the global system, it is trying. It is helping us to promote and and entrench and mainstream forest and landscape restoration in all stages, uh, 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 in all stages uh, within within the within the spectrum uh, that we work in. Thank you. Thank you, Gashero. And uh, moving on to Khalid. Khalid, you mentioned that there was uh, some communication problems with uh, various stakeholders in the government, and I'm sure you have been able to secure uh, very helpful partnerships within that sphere and also in the private sector. Could you take us through some of the partners that you're working with uh, at the moment in ensuring that the birds, the migratory routes of the birds are secure and safe? Yes, um, I think one of the most important partnership we have is uh, with the Ministry of Environment and the Nature Conservation uh, uh, sector, uh, who are responsible for managing the protected areas of Egypt. Uh, from one side, uh, we are uh, we are participating in building the capacity of the protected area staff in the methodology of the Powerline Survey, because this kind of method. Of, uh, of technique and methodology is, is quite precise. Uh, so we are training, we are giving training uh, to the protected area staff to be able to do this kind of work. And from their side, they support us uh, by their vehicles and their manpower. So, and, and, and this help us, help us a lot to survey uh, some of the very remote areas that usually we don't have access to, but with the help of the protected areas, we are expanding the research areas uh, in the country. Uh, moreover, also they are helping us leading the, the communication with different authorities and stakeholders who are responsible 
for the power line construction and power line maintenance. And after uh, after our research, they are also leading the communication to make each partner do their role uh, in terms of mitigations and so on. So this kind of partnership with the government, something that we are very, very proud of, and it is very uh, efficient in our work. And also for the private sector, because the NCE now has uh, has the most expertise uh, in the power uh, in the power line mitigation uh, uh, research and protocols. So we got some offers from private sectors to do research on their behalf, uh, and we get paid for this. So this is also again a very good uh, way to uh, to get more involved. With the private sector and to be able to to secure some money that we can later use also to explore more areas thank you thank you uh khalid and rafael uh, as we close off uh, this um apart uh, how have partnerships played a role in this, in restoring the degraded landscape and uh, wh wh who are the some who, who are the partners that you have worked with in restoring the yongwa uh, forest uh, reserve yeah, partnerships have played a very key role in our restoration efforts. So we've been working with the Resource Management Support Center of the Forestry Commission, and they have been pro providing us with uh, information on the current um, populations, um, the extant population, or the, the information on the diversity of uh, the Tabotella gentai. And then we've also been working with the Forestry Commission itself. They've been providing us with the forest guards, and then they've been providing us access to the, to the forest reserve. We've been working with KNUSD, um, and they have been helping us with the inventory. They've been helping us to raise the seedlings, and then they will also be helping us to go and even restore the degraded landscapes or the degraded portions of the Young West Apostle Forest Reserve. And one private sector, um, organization that we've been working with is Heidelberg Cement in Ghana, which is the Ghana Cement Company. And they are providing us with financial support to raise the Tabotella Gentile seedlings and to restore and, and, to, and to also get more people from the communities to financial support to get to be able to pay the people from the community, to get the people from the community to help us to restore the degraded portions. SM actually mines limestone you know, around the Yongwa Forest Reserve. And so in supporting us, it ensures their, um, it offsets their, their impact on, you know, um, the, the forest reserve. Yeah, and then this whole project in entirety is being supported by the financial support from the Franklinia Foundation. So yeah, basically, yeah, these are all the collaborations on this um, project, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Ralph. And moving on to Toga. Toga, you mentioned you're working with civil society organizations and uh, other government institutions, uh, plus uh, Bad Life International. Are there any other partners that you're working with at the moment? Um, those are the key partners, but of course, we do have stakeholders like the local authorities, the rural district councils on the ground, and they've been also engaging the Forestry Commission as well. Um, in the as a stakeholder in the process, so they've been also coming on board uh, in terms of um, providing their technical expertise um, in the project. 
Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, I would say that uh, we, that was really very helpful yeah, on our side because we've been dealing with complex issues on the ground and also looking at that uh, we were working on livelihoods. So on the, under the livelihood, we had two partners actually focusing on the three livelihoods activities that are on the ground. Then as Bed Life Zimbabwe, we've been also focusing more on the biodiversity and wetland management um, uh, issues. And we also, we have also other issues like uh, issues of institutions uh, management. So we, that is where we have the role for, especially the local authorities, including the rural district council. So they've been very uh, helpful in terms of driving uh, that work. And also in terms of uh, advancing our policy and advocacy work, we have seen the partnership be very fruitful uh, in terms of that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Toga. And as we, as we near the close of this session, um, uh, I, I would like to ask each and every, I would like to give each and every uh, of you a minute or so to, to kindly tell us how, how our listeners you know, can support uh, your conservation efforts. And I'd like to begin with Clara, please. Right, so the message from Zambia is that everybody needs to take action for the environment and that action needs to be taken now so that each one of us can secure our tomorrow. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, Toga, please. Uh, thank you. Um, I think the key message that I'd like to put across is that uh, I think uh, conservation work has been mainly centered on project-based. And I think there's need for long-term programs to ensure continuity because where we have um, gaps in between, that is when we lose uh, a lot of biodiversity. So I think that should be everyone's responsibility uh, to ensure that biodiversity is conserved. And also, uh, I mean, everyone should really come on board in terms of supporting biodiversity conservation because everything starts from the environment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Gashero, please. We we are in the decade of ecosystem restoration. Each individual has a responsibility to participate and become active in landscape restoration in whichever kind or manner. You can join institutions like us, Nature Kenya, we are membership. You can become a member to contribute your, 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 your financing or uh, skill towards supporting our, our, our work, as well as individually participating Within your within your within your neighborhoods and homesteads, towards promoting uh, uh, forest and landscape restoration overall to benefit biodiversity, so that then, as Clara says, for our future generations. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Gashero. Uh, Raphael, please. Okay, so we are Ghana Wildlife Society. We want our listeners to basically start to take action. You know, that's very important. Get up, take action. We're a membership-based NGO. So all listeners who are in Ghana, based in Ghana, can join GWS and help, you know, push our conservation actions. We need more volunteers. You know, we need species champions. We need people to get up and say, okay, you know what? I'm adopting the species. I'm adopting Tabotiela. I'm adopting the hooded vulture, you know, and then we'll campaign and make noise, you know, to raise funds and to to you know, um, advance conservation actions for, for this species. So yeah, basically, this is what I want our listeners to, to, to do. 
to help us here, basically. Thank you. Th thank you so much, Rafael. Um, Khalid, Khalid, please. Yes, um, I would like from all of our uh, our listeners uh, to participate in many different levels. At least each one of us can be part of the solution by adjusting our own behaviors and uh, and perspective towards environment and natural resources. And then if we can help more, we can spread the word, uh, something like this, like share, use, uh, the social media to spread the word of conservation. And if you want to do more, you can always volunteer in any of the project or programs so that you give us more boost and more uh, more impact on the ground. Thank you. Thank you so much, Khalid. And uh, as we gear up towards marking uh, World Environment Day, uh, which uh, whose theme is our restoration of our ecosystem, uh, what key message would you like uh, to pass uh, uh, along? Uh, 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 and I will start with Clara, please. My message to our listeners is um, while we take action, we should look to plant a tree, clean our surroundings. We can volunteer on restoration programs. Let us all reflect on the goodness that comes onto us from what the environment gives us. We have so much to give back to the environment and the time to give back is now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Clara. Uh, Toga, your closing remarks. Uh, thank you. Uh, what I'd like to say is that um, we are actually living in the world uh, with a changing climate and the environmental restoration is key in ensuring um, uh, climate adaptation to climate change and also resilience, improving resilience of our environment. We really need to do a lot more on restoration. Thank you. Thank you so much. Gashero, Gashero, please. So mine is from a quote from Wangari Mathai that if we do not take care of our, of our nature, nature will always hit back. So taking care of our environment, our landscapes, nature will always pay us back. So everyone should take action now for the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Khalid. Yeah, the message is, um, I think our today's actions uh, towards environment and natural resources are going to be the assets for uh, our future kids or younger brothers or any young person in this world so they can have a better life. So think of them, look at them when you are yeah, doing anything toward the environment, either positive or negative. So. Thank you so much, Raphael. Raphael, please. Okay, so um, my parting remarks would be that um, we are the generation that can make peace with, you know, nature. So let's get active, let's get bold. You know, this is our moment. So today, as we celebrate World Environment Day, there will be tree planting exercises going on in the, um, the major town of um, the major streets of Accra. So I would encourage everybody to go out there and then take your seedling and then plant in your back garden, in the house, you know. Just go out there and then just take action, just do something. Let's make peace with nature. Yeah, 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Raphael. Indeed, action starts now. Uh, we, we need to uh, rise up, uh, you know, uh, put all hands on deck. And what a timely discussion, what a timely talk. Thank you so much, everyone, for gracing uh, this occasion. I believe uh, as we all look to reimagine and re rethink um, our relationship with nature in the coming years, this will be a very important discussion and, uh, you know, guiding uh, post or points really to guide us uh, towards uh, ecosystem restoration. Thank you so much uh, for your time and enjoy uh, the rest of your day. Uh, over to you, Lewis. Thanks, Diplex. Uh, thanks all for uh, participating in this uh, special podcast to mark the World Environmental Day. And I'm sure your message will be showcased to a wider audience far and wide globally. Thanks for your time. Have a lovely day. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Thank you. What an amazing, amazing session that was. I hope you've been challenged to go out there and take action, really, whether it's planting that tree, volunteering, starting a garden, recycling, reducing and reusing that waste. I'm sure there's a lot we can do at individual level to ensure that our ecosystems and our environment is safe and secure for current and future generations. And in remembering the words of the late Professor Wangare Mathai, you know, be a hummingbird and do the best that you can. Action begins now. Action starts today. The future is now. And uh, uh, if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast up to this point, be sure to subscribe and leave a review uh, highlighting the key takeaway that you've gotten out of this session. Be sure to check out the websites of um, uh, the partners that have graced this, this session to support and volunteer in their programs that they've listed. Uh, also and uh, I'd like to just remind us uh, to stay safe uh, and take the necessary precautions that have been given to us by World Health Organization and our various governments, uh, local governments and uh, so that we can fight this pandemic and uh, fight for nature, fight for the environment Happy World Environment Day God bless you, God bless you Bye